Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the library of our family from the 29th chapter of Genesis. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The older was Leah, and the younger sister was Rachel. There was no brightness to Leah's eyes, but Rachel was stunningly beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I'll serve you for seven years in exchange for the hand of your younger daughter, Rachel, in marriage. Laban said, Agreed. I'd rather you have her than any other man I know. You may stay here and work. So Jacob served Laban for seven years in exchange for Rachel. The years went by quickly and seemed to him to be only a few days because of his immense love that he had. When the time came, Jacob approached Laban and said, I have now completed seven years of work for you. I ask you now to give me my wife so that I may consummate my marriage. Laban gathered together all of the people in the area and prepared a great feast to celebrate the marriage. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob slept with her thinking she was Rachel. Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. When morning came, Jacob realized it was Leah and said to Laban, What have you done to me? Did we not have a deal, seven years of labor in exchange for your daughter Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger in marriage before the firstborn. If you complete this wedding week with Leah, then I will also give you Rachel. But in return, you must give me another seven years. Jacob agreed and completed his week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel in marriage. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's begin with a confession. This is a horrible story. Like many of the origin stories found in the book of Genesis, every character in this story is violated and devalued in one way or another. Every woman in this story is treated like human chattel, devoid of feelings, thoughts, or will. Leah is violated. Rachel is violated. Even the love between Jacob and Rachel is violated and devalued. To be sure, there is a historical tradition of looking at this story much like we might look at Romeo and Juliet as a tragic love story that demonstrates how far the hero Jacob will go for the love of Rachel. On behalf of Zilpah and Bilhah, the two other women given away as property in this story, I feel it necessary to reject that interpretation. Surely we can all agree that they would not view this story as a triumph of romantic love. Instead, I would submit to you that the reason a horrible story like this is told, retold, written down, preserved, and interpreted for thousands of years by billions of people is because it has something existential and transcendent to communicate, because it provides a window into the nature of humanity and the nature of reality. Specifically, I would submit to you that we have and hold on to a horrible story like this precisely because it has the capacity to confront us 
with questions we might not otherwise ask. Questions like, how do we end up enslaved? Such a question may appear to be disconnected from this story, but in reality, the question, how do we end up enslaved, is not only connected, but interwoven into every story in Genesis. If we zoom out on Genesis and look at the broad strokes, we see a trajectory that begins with a formless void, moves through the poems of creation, traces the downward spiral of humanity exploring and tragically misusing its freedom, follows the twisting tale of the Israelites, a new tribe called by God to bless all the other tribes of the earth, and lands rather precisely with that tribe escaping famine and serving in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. It's worth noting that those Israelites got their name from Jacob. After Jacob wrestles with the divine in the 32nd chapter of Genesis, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God. It's also worth noting that the Hebraic word for Egypt, the land where Jacob's tribe will end up, is Mitzrayim, which means narrow place. So to review, Genesis starts with nothing and ends with a tribe of Israelites, those who wrestle with the divine, on the precipice of becoming slaves in Egypt, the narrow place. That is not a coincidence. The story that follows the book of Genesis is the story of the Exodus, the story of Moses and the enslaved Israelites being painfully led out of the narrow place toward freedom. The Exodus is the central story of the scriptures. It's the story that defines, underlies, and contextualizes every other story in the biblical library. It's foundational, interwoven throughout the scripture, even underlying the gospels. In my first year of graduate school, our Torah professor, Dr. Robert Gibbs, taught us that if we failed to wrestle with the Exodus, it would be impossible to truly wrestle with the cross. This God, he said, always calls the enslaved toward freedom. No matter where we enter the river of the biblical story, the waters of the Exodus are there. The loving God of the Exodus who calls, pushes, pulls, leads, and loves oppressed people away from slavery and toward freedom inhabits all the stories of the Bible. These stories are connected. They're not detached or isolated. Contrary to how we may have received them in Sunday school, not one of the biblical stories are an island. Beneath the surface, they are one. They are all part of a larger whole. Like a story about Abraham and Sarah's grandson, Jacob, who enters into what appears to be a reasonable work contract for the woman he loves but winds up violated and enslaved for decades. This story of Jacob and Laban in Genesis 29, at least on one level, is meant to remind us of the Exodus, to foreshadow it, to point toward it, and give layered meaning to the coming story of the Israelites in Egypt. If we can see the miniature Exodus this story reveals, 
that Jacob represents the Israelites and that Laban represents Pharaoh, then understanding how Jacob ended up enslaved to Laban can not only provide a lens through which we can examine the central story that underlies the entire biblical narrative, but also a mirror in which we can face the question, how did we end up slaves in Egypt? How do God wrestlers end up enslaved in the narrow place? That is a question that concerns all of us. And the answer this story seems to provide is through delusion, deceit, and detachment. Delusion, deceit, and dehumanization. Without question, these are not friendly words. My delusion, deceit, and dehumanization are not the kind of things I want to see looking back at me in the mirror. So before we attempt to face the mirror, let's spend some time looking through the lens of Jacob. You may remember Jacob. He's the one of, one of the twins that tumbled and kicked and struggled while still in the womb. He's the one who was born clutching the heel of his brother Esau, the one whose name literally means heel grabber, the one who tricked his brother Esau into selling his birthright and lied to his father in order to steal his brother's blessing. Jacob has a story that is chock full of delusion, deceit, and dehumanization. And just in case we had forgotten who Jacob had been, the story of Laban and Rachel and Leah makes sure that we remember. The Genesis storyteller goes to great lengths to make sure we connect the dots. In the 15 short verses that make up this story in Genesis 29, there are no less than a dozen allusions to Jacob's past. This story is saturated with what is known in Hebrew as remez, directional arrows or hints that point to other stories, reminding us that the stories are connected. For example, in verse 20, this story states that the first seven years of labor seemed like just a few days to Jacob. The Hebraic phrase translated as a few days is yamin ahadim, which means a short while. Jacob's mother, Rachel, uses the same exact phrase in Genesis 27 after Jacob steals Esau's blessing, telling him he should go hide at Uncle Laban's place for yamin ahadim, a few days. In that story, when Jacob steals the blessing of the firstborn from Esau, Jacob does so by covering himself in the textures and smells of Esau. He presents himself as Esau to deceive his father. Similarly, Laban covers Leah in the textures of a bride and presents her to Jacob as Rachel. The 11th century rabbi Rashi taught that even the presentation of Zilpah as a servant to Leah was part of the cover-up. According to Rashi, Zilpah was the younger of the two servants and should have gone to Rachel. Thus, presenting Leah with Zilpah further disguised Leah as Rachel. Jacob is able to deceive his father Isaac into thinking he's Esau because of Isaac's failing eyesight. Isaac can't see, so in the darkness he relies on his sense of touch. Laban is able to deceive Jacob by presenting Leah at night so that in the darkness 
Jacob can't see and instead relies on his sense of touch. When Jacob wakes up the next morning and realizes what has happened, he asks Laban, why have you deceived me? Using the Hebraic word mirmah, the same root word used by Isaac when he previously described what Jacob had done to Esau. These stories are connected. The details and language used are hints and allusions to their interwoven nature. The same dehumanizing deceit that pulsed through Jacob, allowing him to violate his brother Esau, his father Isaac, and his entire family now runs through the veins of Laban as he violates Jacob and Rachel and Leah and their entire family. As Michael Williams states in the storyteller's companion to the Bible, the trickster is tricked, the deceiver is deceived which we are certainly meant to recognize. In fact, as the reader or hearer of this story, it feels good to know that what goes around comes around, that Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine. That just feels right. Yet there is still the nagging question of what started all of this. Why did Jacob trick his brother out of his birthright? Why did he deceive his father in order to steal the blessing of the firstborn from Esau? What sets all of this in motion? I would invite you to consider the possibility that these horrible stories all begin in the same place with the same problem. Delusion. An unshakable belief in something false despite evidence to the contrary. A a refusal to experience things as they truly are. Did you know that the most massive living organism on earth can be found on 106 acres off of the southwest bank of the Fish Lake in Sevier County, Utah? That organism, the largest on our planet, is a collection of aspen trees called the pandoclone. Aspen trees have what is known as a rhizomatic root system, which simply means that when we see a cluster of aspen trees, They're not actually individual trees. They're connected, all birthed from the same subterranean system of roots and shoots. An individual aspen tree can live anywhere from 40 to 150 years above ground, but the root system that unites them is extremely long-lived, in some cases thousands of years old. Scientists estimate that the root system of the Pando aspens in Utah is 80,000 years old. It's that root system, that connection beneath the surface, that provides aspens with a unique ability to survive the above-ground elements like pollution and pestilence and fire. We may look at a forest of aspen trees and see and think of them as individual and separate trees, but that is not reality. That is a delusion. They are united. They are one. I would submit to you that to engage in the deceit and dehumanization that followed in their behavior, both Laban and Jacob first had to believe the delusion that they were not connected, that they were not one. In order to deceive and steal from his brother, to scandalize his entire family, Jacob first had to believe the lie that he was somehow detached 
and disconnected from Esau, that Esau was other. In order to deceive and violate Jacob and Rachel and Leah to scandalize his entire family, Laban first had to believe the lie that he was somehow detached and disconnected from Jacob and even his daughters, that they were other. This is not to intimate that Laban or Jacob created this delusion or to make them the villains from whom we can detach. In fact, according to the book of Genesis, this delusion of detachment begins in the garden with Adam and Eve. In the creation poem of Genesis 2 and 3, humanity awakens to the free nature of life, realizing that they have a choice to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil or not, to live in the divine reality or to construct their own reality, to trust that they are one in and with the source of all things or to convince themselves that is not the case and instead believe a delusion that they are detached from each other and God. According to Genesis, the freedom to choose this delusion is part of the human condition. It's part of the nature of freedom. We don't have to believe what is real and true. According to Genesis, we have always had the freedom to discard reality and invent our own. The Franciscan priest Richard Rohr powerfully summarizes this delusion with the statement, the only thing that separates us from God is the belief that we are. And since imitation is the highest form of flattery, I would simply add, the only thing that separates us from each other is the belief that we are. That is the delusion. That is the lie that enables and empowers all of the deception and dehumanization that inevitably follows. That delusion is literally where the story of Genesis 29 begins. And here's the thing. It's really easy to miss. A good delusion usually is. It's not as if the lies we tell ourselves are presented as outright lies. We dress them up quite nicely, even presenting them as honorable and considerate. Like an uncle who asks his nephew who has been working for him for a month, what should I pay you? That seems considerate, doesn't it? Verse 15 quotes Laban as saying, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages shall be. Now, it's extremely subtle, especially to a modern Western audience like us who like to get paid for work, but this is it. This is the moment of pivot away from the connected reality and into a delusion of detachment. Although Laban starts his question by acknowledging that Jacob is his relative, by the time he finishes his question, Jacob is no longer a relative, but a servant. As biblical scholar Nahum Sarna states, a member of the household does not receive payment for their services. Family members are heirs, and heirs are not paid as though they are servants. Heirs freely work toward and freely share in the benefits of the household and family. Laban and Jacob are related. 
They should be covenanted as family, which Rabbi Jonathan Sachs describes as a mutual act of commitment in which people honor their differences, respect the dignity of the other, come together in a bond of love to join their destinies, and chart a future together. Does that sound like the relationship between Laban and Jacob? Not at all. But if Laban wants to dehumanize Jacob, if he wants to deceive him for his own gain, he must first believe that Jacob is somehow other and detached from him. He must follow the delusion that they are not one. And when he does, just as Jacob had done before him, I, the reader, the listener, the audience to these horrible stories, enjoy a posture of ironic distance, watching from the sidelines as the destruction mounts and the bodies of destroyed lives pile up. I feel sorry for Leah. I'm sad for Rachel. I'm, I'm even outraged for Zilpah and Bilchah. But the truth is, I'm not really watching from the sidelines. I'm not really detached from all of this. These stories aren't here just to provide me a lens through which to examine and judge and delusionally, delusionally distance myself from Jacob and Laban. We, too, are one. These layered and connected stories are also my mirror. They are here to confront me with questions I might not otherwise ask myself. Questions like, who have I decided is other? What deceit am I dressing up nicely and presenting as honorable and considerate? When am I convincing myself that it's okay to treat someone else as though we are not connected, as though we are not one? Where have I chosen the delusion? And why don't I recognize that it will only end up in my enslavement? In his letter from a Birmingham jail, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. How did we end up as slaves in Egypt? How do God wrestlers end up enslaved in the narrow place? Jacob and Esau know. Laban and Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah know too. Theirs are horrible stories, stories of delusion, deceit, and dehumanization. Our world, right here, right now, is full of horrible stories. If I'm honest, I find the stories of Genesis rather tame in comparison to the horrors we unleash. More human beings are enslaved now than have ever been. Billions of our sisters and brothers have been and are being crushed under the weight of our delusion of detachment. Surely every single one of us has experienced some form of dehumanization in our lives, being treated as other, as though our experiences or our feelings are irrelevant and less than, as though we are detached, isolated, and alone. 
dehumanizing each other, dressing up our reasons to dismiss, discount, and disregard people has become so common that it is difficult to even recognize as a choice we make anymore. But here's the inescapable reality. Every time I make that choice, I'm not only chipping away at the true identity of another beloved child of God, I'm also actively chipping away at my own identity. My delusion deforms both of us. I end up on both sides of a horrible story, as Jacob and Esau, as Laban and Jacob, both Pharaoh and slave. And that's not who we really are. We're not detached. And the reality is we never have been. We are one. We are connected in and with the loving God of the Exodus, the God of Jacob and Laban and Esau and Rachel and Leah, the God who calls, pushes, pulls, leads, and loves oppressed people away from slavery and toward freedom. We are all connected under the covenant of family. And our divine parent invites all of us into a mutual act of commitment in which people honor their differences, respect the dignity of the other, come together in a bond of love to join their destinies and chart a future together. We're not meant to be enslaved. We are family every single one of us together. In the name of the source with which we wrestle through the humility of the Christ who prayed that we would be one and by the spirit breath that we all share, may we come out of the narrow place and believe it.